Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. And we're your favorite podcast, all but the books of Rick Riordan. Today, we're continuing, not a book, but a TV show, the PJO TV series, episodes three and four, and we've brought with us our special guest. Hi, I'm Audrey. I'm really excited. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Audrey. Hello, Audrey. Now, loyal, I'm, I'm realizing this as I'm speaking, loyal and, and wise girls listeners might have heard Audrey on, the, on this feed before. I, I was on the show swap episode. I came on with Riley to talk about the Golden Compass. And now oh, you, yeah. you've come on to talk about something different than the, I think this is not the Golden Compass from what I understand. This is, I'm sure there are similarities, but... Yeah, I don't think this one's The Golden Compass. There's a TV show of that, too, that I have not watched. But this is about a TV show that I have watched and am currently watching, I guess, is what I should say. Uh, the Percy Jackson TV show that's on Disney. Well, that's a good first step. I'm glad yeah. to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, so I guess I want to start out by asking. We, we like to ask whenever we have a guest, which is very, very sparingly. Um, <laughs> we... What is your sort of familiarity with the works of Rick Riordan, if any? So I grew up reading Percy Jackson. I think that I was like probably slightly older than the intended age group when they came out, but read the the whole first series about Percy um, and then recently did a reread like last year of them. And then I decided I was going to try to read Riordan's other stuff. And I started uh, the first Heroes of Olympus book and I went, no. I'm not into it. <laughs> that's like so, fair. That's that's what I did. I I'm really interested in like the Magnus Chase series, I think, but I also am way out of the age group now and I'm like, I don't know. It's I it's so weird reading like middle grade media as an adult, you know? It is. I, I will say we've we've done the first Magnus Chase book now. It does kind of whip. Does it? Okay. Yeah. All right. That's a high recommendation because y'all are the experts on all the Riordan stuff. So yeah, and we're not afraid to say when it is like garbage, which it is sometimes. Um, I I totally get that dissonance where it's like sometimes I'm like I am watching a show for eight year olds, uh, and that I and I am not eight years old anymore. So I I I I like to take it from the perspective of like. You know, keeping in mind the intended age group, and also like mm -hmm. we could also uh, expect good things from something intended toward children, right? We can we yeah. can hope that it is of, of a quality. Absolutely, I think there's totally merit in in like children's media and children's literature and stuff, um, even as an adult. But I also like like you're saying, you gotta temper your expectations going in. Yeah. And speaking of tempering expectations, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Should we get right into episode three uh, of the Percy Jackson TV show? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Uh, we 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 start with some incredible. Uh, we we get right into the Oracle here. Um, the the big Oracle scene where Percy gets the prophecy that will guide him on this quest, and I I'm I'm like. 
I'm Jane told me before this recording that she got furious at points of this show, so I'm sort of like vibrating like my ears trying to hear when <laughs> she gets angry um, to see if I can like pick out the rhythm of what she's angry about before she actually says it. Uh, and I'm, I, uh, Jane, are you angry with the Oracle? Ch- yes or no? No, I I think it's kind of lame. Yeah? I think the, the, the Oracle, like... Not to immediately jump in and be like, oh, it was better in the book. But the Oracle in the book is, like, weird and creepy and, like, kind of gross. And I don't think the show really ends up capturing that at all. And it's just, like, it's it's a sad old woman in the chair. I felt like they tried to make the Oracle, like, a like a jump scare type of thing. Or, like, mm-hmm. a jump scare by omission, right? So that the reveals come, like, later. Like, they were all supposed to be punches or whatever. And I just none of it landed and like when the i did laugh out loud when percy was like oh you're like a halloween decoration because i was like that, yeah no, that that's what it one. is that's what it is yeah it's it's like you go to spirit halloween and for a hundred dollars put and put on your lawn like dead woman in chair <laughs> and it's kind of a decent dead woman in chair prop like i i like or you know probably person i'm guessing uh, i have no idea i don't know how this show was made this could be a person this could be a prop uh i it was it's a it looks pretty decent i was like oh that's someone dead there uh but then the gabe thing happens and i think it's funny and like g- quirky but I, again like jane like you said this isn't particularly creepy I don't, I, I'm not against funny and quirky, but I don't think this is the scene where you do that, you know? Especially because it's kind of delivering the the whole, like, thing that Percy is going to spend the next two episodes angsting about, which is the fact that he will save, fail to save what it matters most, and also one of his friends is going to stab him in the back. It's true, and also, I, like, it did kind of pull the rug out from under you because, alright, like... I'm not going to go on a hero's journey tirade. I promised myself I wouldn't, but the, (laughs) this is kind of like the call to action part for Percy and it, it just like undermines it. Yeah. Like it takes the seriousness and like the guts out of it. I felt like. Yeah. And I think that's, I, I could see that being somewhat intentional because so much of this, like Percy being ushered into the quest is so rushed um like we mm-hmm. saw that with how quickly we get into uh him being told about the the master bowl in episode two mm-hmm. um and i i could see this being sort of an intentional thing where we are undercutting some of that because we are playing with these ideas of like who is the hero right right um but structurally though i don't know that it works from like a just a television standpoint Mm-hmm. Uh, just because we, uh, Percy is our protagonist. Percy is our hero. Uh, we like this little kid, and so we want to see what is driving him and be able to take it seriously. Right. And also, like it, it kind of plays into the the thing that was happening in the first two episodes, where Gabe is kind of a joke now. Uh huh. <laughs> Which oh, very much. The, so. I think the uh, like show producers of the show actually like put out some stuff about this where they like explicitly have said that, like. They really want to downplay like the idea of Gabe as this like abusive step husband, mm-hmm. step father, whatever the fuck. <laughs> I don't Which... think there's. 
I like the idea of a step husband. Do you think that's what the Mormons call it? Like, it must be. It must. I, there's got to be some step husbands. It's the. It's the like. It's the Olympians, right? They have stuff going. Oh, on. Yeah, no, you're right. right. Oh gosh, it's messy. We can't just have a normal polycule, okay? No, we have to invest like at least a little bit of patriarchy into it. Um, uh, yeah, Gabe. Gabe's just a funny guy. He's he's kind of pathetic, but and he's also, I think, like you could say that this is someone who Percy doesn't like, and that is like they're employing that to uh, sort of show that this is a uh, like a rancid sort of thing that he's getting. This prop, this prophecy is really like not only is it saying things that he doesn't want to hear, it's being told from the mouth of someone he especially doesn't like to see. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I don't know. It's not particularly impressive to me. I think that, I like, again, I literally just talked about giving children's media some grace and stuff. And I get downplaying the idea of, of Gabe as, like, an abusive stepfather, an abusive husband, um, because kids that have had to live through that, you know, don't necessarily want to see it reflected mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. TV. But I also think that if they had leaned into Gabe as a scarier figure and like a real type of scary, mm-hmm. right, then it could have worked having his face appear with the Oracle as like a means by which this is just further scaring and inducing dread in Percy. But or they could have had him be kind of goofy and then not had him be in the Oracle scene. But the fact that they yeah. were both, you know, is what makes it not work for me, I think. That's a good point. That's a really good point. Uh, it also makes it so that the Oracle... Hmm, this is... This is, like... It makes it so that the Oracle as a figure is slightly less important, I think. Uh, and if we're talking yes. forward... I think that does some interesting things uh, for for characters who get really tied up in the Oracle as a figure uh, to, to show up. Who will, I'm guessing if this show goes on for however many seasons, will eventually, uh, you know, need to have some firm basis for that. So mm-hmm. it, if the Oracle shows up every book as just some silly guy, uh, I, I'm guessing it's not always going to be Gabe. It probably <laughs> will, you know, change based on the books. Then, I would kind of respect it if it was just Gabe every time, even <laughs> after Gabe stops appearing in this show. That would be, that would be very funny. funny. I think that would, wouldn't fix this for me, but I would like it. <laughs> uh, and then we get to the, the quest, the, the choosing of Percy's compatriots. Chiron, with, with a very funny line here, when Percy automatically goes for Annabeth, customarily one waits to hear a name or two before choosing. Uh, I, I, I like that. Chiron already a little bit like all right Percy respect respect our ways a little bit please <laughs> everyone else around the table is like I, f- I fucking came all the way out here just to get immediately snubbed by this fucking kid yeah I I want to know who all these people are actually <laughs> what makes them so like compelling as candidates I how does Chiron choose the candidates do you think is it like competency matrix or <laughs> something else? Whichever one has managed not to like injure themselves with a sword in the past week. Yeah, I, that's which I assume fair. is about. This is about how many campers there are who have done that. I think this is probably yep. all of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you would think Luke was there. He, I don't think he was. Wait, was Luke in the lineup? I don't think he was. Well, Percy talks later like he was. I don't remember seeing him. 
I didn't see him, but yeah, they have that conversation later where Percy apologizes for not yeah. choosing him. Maybe he's talking like he was already going a bit extrajudicial with like choosing Grover. So maybe he's oh, apo- apologizing for not also doing the same for Luke. I like the idea of just Percy totally ruining these these sort of uh, customs because that's who he is and it's very funny and adding in a scene with that is that establishes that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I do kind of want to I, I want to know more about the camper who is in this lineup who's in a wheelchair. Yeah, because that seems like it, you know the 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 Percy Jackson stuff is so often about how like how like dis the barriers that are put up to you because you're disabled. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, the fact that um, a lot of what Percy is talking about in these episodes is, like, it's bullshit the way that we have to try and get our parents' approval and attention. And I think, like, getting the perspective of someone in a wheelchair about the fact that they have to do, like, heavy, phys- physically strenuous, like, questing and running around and killing monsters in a fucking wheelchair is kind of... Yeah. I think that's that, that, that could be an interesting route to explore. Yeah, I agree. I I, I want to like I want this person to be a character, um, mm-hmm. in, instead of just like showing up once in the background. And because I, y- you could do the thing of like, you you could make the argument like, oh, they're just showing a character who uses a wheelchair, so the people get like excited about that, and then never actually show like, make them characters or have them show up that, more. You know, that's my worry. <laughs> uh, we don't know that yet, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. but. It is a fear, especially, I think, with Disney's particular mm-hmm. brand of television. Yes. You know? Absolutely. And I, I, uh, bl- the Black Sails Minute, uh, Black Sails, which the sort of head writer of the show, uh, created, uh, has a lot of very interesting, uh, like, ideas around disability that it works with very compelling stuff um like has like lead characters who are very invested in like like ideas around disability and i think that it would be cool if that continued to show up in this show um mm-hmm. the the disney pushback though like 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 we're saying who's to say um grover is having a fun time he's working those fields uh i shovel and poop I like that we're getting more of Camp Half-Blood as not just a big forest in these episodes. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it has its own infrastructure, right? And I do like that they showed it to us. I feel like, and this is weird to say, maybe, but I feel like even though Percy's adventures don't spend a lot of time at Camp Half-Blood, I would be happy to spend a whole season at Camp Half-Blood. You know what I mean? We've said this repeatedly throughout the books, and especially about, like, Camp Jupiter and Heroes of Olympus, which is, like, a lot less developed. Yeah. Yeah, We want... I would love for Camp Half-Blood to just be a place we spend a lot of time at, because I always think it's really interesting when we're there. Um, Mm -hmm. And I... I want to know about, like... how does it work? Like people get punished and made to like work the work the Pegasus poop fields. Like how does like what's the sort of like is Clarice gonna get punished and made to work the fields for fighting Percy? Like are these are we gonna? I, I basically I just want to know all about the the workings, the machinations, and how how this thing runs. Um, but we're never gonna get that, so that's fine. Uh, <laughs> speaking speaking of these children tilling the fields, I did notice that uh, they've omitted something from the books. Is it which is the? Uh, sorry, you. Is it the strawberry fields? 
It's the strawberry fields, which I think are in the show. We see them briefly, but uh, when Percy is talking about how he's been given $200, he doesn't say it's a loan that I have to work off in the fields like he does in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're right. Oh my god. He's not an indentured servant in this one. Hooray. (laughs) That's good. That's good, I guess. Um, People can grow and change. (laughs) And I guess Rick Riordan decided that Uh was in poor taste. Oh my god. Um, speaking of poor taste, Luke gives Percy some flying shoes, uh, and I, they, they're just some nasty old shoes, um, Mm -hmm. and he is very, he, he wants Percy to work with Annabeth and he wants them all to protect each other, right? Um, Mm -hmm. we're getting more, like, this is our best buddy Luke and he's the coolest guy in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, And it's also a little bit, um, I know that I have some plans in the works that are going to cause a lot of trouble for you guys. Uh, Please don't get the person I care about killed. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing the extra context about him gives more weight to his scenes, Mm -hmm. I think. Completely agreed. I think that is really where, this is some of the very strong writing here, uh, where I think it just like, it's one of those shows that works really well the first time through. I mean, probably. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing it's going to work pretty decently well. I guess it hasn't finished yet. Um, but I think we'll be even stronger if like, if somebody has absorbed the Percy Jackson of it all and then gone back, which is... Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little bit of extra loot content that we don't get here, which is him telling Percy about his scar. Because- oh, that's true. Yeah. I forgot about that. Um, yeah. I mean, I was I was like, oh, yeah, Luke's scar. He has a scar. And, like, did not ever occur to me that he never explained it, like, in the show. Yeah. And I think that this is actually... We were... Because the- I think originally Luke says this, I don't know when, a bit earlier than this in the story of the Lightning Thief. Um, but we were theorizing that this might happen around then, around here, as sort of, like, Luke bidding farewell to Percy and giving him a word of warning... Um, maybe inciting some cynicism, although Percy gets pl- plenty cynical in his own uh, in these episodes. <laughs> yeah, uh, and I, I'm wondering how important an omission this is. Like, will this um, th- is that would it feel extraneous to have Luke go on about how quests are bullshit, the gods are mean, and uh, it's it just it's all just going to get you hurt with what what we already have from the TV show. I, it may be, although I think if they are just straight replacing it with it coming from other people, I think that makes it a bit weaker, just because of, like, Luke's entire deal, I think, like, having him make that case kind of makes his motivation come across more clearly. I also think that it might, and and obviously it might be too early to say this, but I I wonder if it might weaken the like empathy that you feel for for Luke later on because Percy's feeling it even while he's feeling betrayed and also if it might weaken that feeling of betrayal mm. right because we're supposed to be getting that Luke is almost like this father figure that Percy never had like older brother yeah, yeah. but you know what I mean like it is a he he is a paternal influence on Percy and I don't know if the show gave enough of that for it to really be super impactful later. Yeah, yeah I think, like, in, in a book, you can get away with kind of taking a shortcut on that stuff by just, like, des- describing a couple of paragraphs how they bonded over the, like, week or two that Percy was at Camp Half-Blood that you can't really do in a TV show. Right. Right. 
that's that's exactly what it is and and that's i think part of what makes it feel like the camp half-blood stuff is kind mm-hmm. of rushed um which the irony of talking about how it's rushed is that we're still talking <laughs> yes. about it uh, I, <laughs> we haven't even left it in these episodes Audrey, i i <laughs> regret to inform you that we went for two hours last week we we can try and keep it a bit shorter <laughs> this week um hopefully um we thalia there's more thalia stuff and i love this it's tree time it's tree time percy is the world's biggest asshole to annabeth percy's right uh-huh i think <laughs> i i think percy's being a dick about it but also the point he's making it the the exchange where annabeth is like she met a hero's fate and percy replies she met a pinecone's fate reminds me so much of like fucking respect the troops kind of rhetoric yeah Whereas, like, per- Percy is being a dick, but he's correctly identified that, like, Thalia died pointlessly because this entire system is fucked. You're, you're really yeah. right. Uh, I mean, count the number of times, also, just speaking of that, that Annabeth ha- is like, we're soldiers, we need to do this, right? She literally, yeah, she says that out loud when they're on the bus. Um, and so I, I think, I mean, Percy, you're right, he's completely correct, even though he is being not particularly nice about her feelings. Um, Thalia died pointlessly. Like, Thalia did, like, he says, like, it, could the all-powerful king of the gods not have done something more than turn her into a tree? Uh, <laughs> and he is completely right. <laughs> Percy, We this TV show needs to branch off into the Percy kills all the gods timeline. <laughs> I mean... Look, the the rate of snark they have him at, I could see it happening. <laughs> I I I actually appreciated that he was like so callous about her feelings because I don't know that many emotionally intelligent mm-hmm. 12-year-olds. That's very true. And I think that there are a lot of ways the show has made Percy feel more mature to me than he felt in the mm-hmm. books. And so it was nice to see him being just kind of careless and callous in a way that's not like his hero's recklessness. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, his whole inviting Annabeth along is sort of born of that sort of callousness because he's like, well, I'll never be your friend, so I don't have to worry about that. Uh, Which I think is just like kind of a mean thing to say to another kid, right? Um, That's a horrible thing to say to another kid. You probably shoved me down a flight of stairs to to get this quest done. (laughs) Oh, it is very, it's very funny though. Um, The only emotionally intelligent among, like almost like, like emotionally intelligent one among them is Grover and he's 24 years old. (laughs) (laughs) It's totally true. And also his idea of like making the peace is like singing a camp song with them. When he started clapping, I was like, what the fuck is happening? Everyone was like that. (laughs) Yeah. Where I, I for a second thought this was going like, oh, they don't have him able to like play the flute or whatever he did in the books. Like maybe like the actor isn't able to like play an instrument, so they don't want to do any of that. Uh, so they're just having him sing a song to do magic. Um, no. I, uh-huh. I also just want to point out before this, uh, the absolutely massive lib energy of Percy saying that they should take a vote to decide if Annabeth can stop them from voting. <laughs> Oh, in- incredible stuff. Oh. This is how we, this is how, uh, this is how we save democracy. <laughs> yes. Um, oh my gosh. That won't at all end up in a cyclical red tape cycle where they're constantly voting about whether or I not I think they vote. should meet Annabeth halfway, you know? Um, <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah. <laughs> Grover is like, 
I think what this episode really establishes is how much we need to remember this guy lives like he's not like he's not from like from Kentucky. He's not from uh he's not from like Anchorage. He's not from any of these places. He he's from summer camp. Uh Grover is <laughs> like born and raised. That's his hometown. Yes, his hometown is just <laughs> summer camp and that means that the best thing he knows how to do in a t- time of crisis is sing a song. Um and that I really like that actually. That is kind of fun. I, now, now that you like you put it laid it out like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I yeah, I really like Grover a lot. I mean, okay, so we we talked about them being on a bus because we've left Camp Half Blood because mm-hmm. they're on their quest. Yes, right. Like, uh, the bus is, man. Um, I don't know. I haven't been on a Greyhound in a really long time, so I don't know if that's what buses are actually like anymore. Um, but they see the Furies again. Um, mm-hmm. Mrs. Dodds and what I don't know which the other one is. I know Mrs. Dodds is Electo, but I don't know which one the other one is. It's it's either uh, what Tisiphone or um, Megara. Megara, yeah. yes. Whichever one it is, one they them. they fly through the fucking window like a seagull smashing through the windshield <laughs> of a car. <laughs> yes, they 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 do not last long. Um, yeah. <laughs> We we get onto this bus after a like Bilbo Baggins ass quest opening with them all walking into it, the grass. It wants to be Lord of the Rings so bad. <laughs> it really does. Yes, I I think it works okay. Um, I I I do want wish they had like gotten to the bus instead by uh fucking what's his name the guy with three eyes or like a million eyes. Um, oh yeah, Argus. 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 Yeah. I, I, Where's Argus? I love Argus. We need Argus. Argus in the would show. be so expensive to have in the show. <laughs> I know, but I would love to have Argus. Just put googly eyes on him. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Hey, if if everything ever all at once could do it, then uh, this the show can do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I adore how much everything is just breaking down on this bus, but both on the bus itself, mechanically, and also uh, between our our heroes. Um, they they don't know how to like be alone unsupervised and like act normal no these are a bunch of hyperactive 12 year olds and one 24 year old who still looks 12 (laughs) yes um there's a bunch of like little exposition things about how monsters work uh the really great exchange of they smell fear that's bees Uh, (laughs) (laughs) grover just he's he's wonderful um, and I I really like just how much Annabeth and Percy don't like each other at the start. Man, I gotta say, the actress for Annabeth is like, holy shit, like the intensity that she's bringing. I was like, I buy it. I believe you. I believe that you are a daughter of Athena. Like, holy shit, you know? In every scene, I'm like, the contempt is rolling off of you. It's amazing. That's really interesting because I I kind of feel like um, her performance is maybe the weakest of the three, which I feel kind That's of bad totally saying because I know the actress has gotten a lot of racist abuse, but still. Yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think I'm somewhat of a centrist on this issue. I think you're both kind of right <laughs> in that I think she is bringing a lot of like great energy to her performance, and I think she like 
has has the stuff like she she brings mm-hmm. uh what a, like a child of athena needs she she brings the she is like doing annabeth well i think that she is uh sometimes doing the child actor thing of like this isn't how that yes. line should sound yeah. um and i think she's yes. she is doing it a little bit more than the other ca- the other main three which makes it stand out mm-hmm. i think that that's fair i definitely think that i am more thinking about like her nonverbal acting yes. like uh, just there are mm-hmm. scenes that she has with Percy where I'm like I just can't stop watching her face and like the things she's doing with her eyebrows like it's just really intense yeah I think she's doing great nonverbally uh I hadn't I hadn't picked up I'll keep an eye on that in the next couple of episodes you should because she's doing a lot of work there actually I I was mm-hmm. like that was probably the one of my biggest takeaways from her performance uh and speaking of her intensity um after going in and grabbing a whole bunch of candy uh which <laughs> what were these things called? they were like big oofs or something like that <laughs> anyone else take I, note I of this they, i did not it seemed like a fake brand right it's yeah it seemed like it uh they were just like giant balls of candy when i i thought she said she was going to get chips and soda but uh, you know, and then she spent all the money on these big orbs. Yeah, you know, twelve years old again. Um, <laughs> but she she spots uh, one of uh, is it? It's, I think it's just Mrs. Dodds, right? Um, at the at the um, at the gas station, and I, I for like half a second thought that this cashier was going to be like, "Where are your parents? I'm calling the police." <laughs> Because she is so obviously horrified by the amount of candy, like she the, the like thirty dollars of candy that Annabeth is buying, <laughs> and then we confront a fury, and then we don't confront a fury because the bus fight doesn't happen. The the bus it's fight true. again. It just the the fury smashes through the window, crumples in the fucking corner. So I don't know what its plan was, and then they just leave. Well, Annabeth throws the knife into it, and I thought she it, threw the uh, knife at Mrs. Dawes, and the other one is just like. No. Which No, no, I no, you're right. Because you're right. Dodds Dodds follows them you're right, to yeah. Medusa's place. Yeah. So she she kills the fury that is like an idiot and <laughs> <laughs> um, the one that was just that just had a fucking concussion and needed needed a few minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like stood up to try and ca- get its balance and catch its breath and she throws a knife into its <laughs> chest. Uh and they climb out the window of the bus and run off. I'm sad that this isn't in here. I, yeah, I, I, one, it's it's missing the thing from the book where, like, through the mist, what the mortals see when Percy's fighting Mrs. Dodds is him, like, beating an old woman to death with a baseball bat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite scenes. I think we're basically omitting the, like, child terrorist Percy arc. <laughs> <laughs> um, which uh, is... Uh-huh. It sucks, and I, I understand why, because it also never comes up in the book again, because it's, like... Because like that's that's such a major thing to have happen, but also that was so funny, and I'm so sad that it's not in here. I, one of my favorite scenes, I I think that like Gabe on TV being like, I always knew that kid was the worst, would have been so yes. funny to see in live action. Um, With like a woman who is heavily implied to be a prostitute on his arm the entire time. Right. Oh, very much. <laughs> oh my god, I forgot about that. Uh, and instead, we head right into them getting lost in the woods somewhere in New Jersey, worried that they're never going to make it to L.A. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I there is this is when we get 
one of like a, a dynamic from Percy, Annabeth, and Grover that I don't think was ever explored in the books, and I'm really glad they're doing it here. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Annabeth says, "He was my protector first. Um, oh yes, and they like the fact that they both go to Grover as like an in between to try and like do conflict for them and like be on their <laughs> side. That's really compelling. I really like that. Um, because I think it makes perfect sense because, hey, Annabeth was in the same position Percy was for, like, years beforehand. Yeah. I yeah. Think, is it maybe, I don't remember off the top of my head, it might be because um, the Grover-Annabeth backstory stuff was only established in Sea of Monsters. That's true. Yeah, I think that is actually, and this is a, a, a success of backfilling, right? This is... Mm-hmm. Um, putting so much stuff that would have made a lot of sense to put in the first book if Rick Riordan knew about it before he wrote the second book, um, like or knew about before knew about the stuff he was going to write in the second book before he wrote the first book, then that would have all made sense to be put in there. But instead, uh, always thinking about the Sea of Monsters movie that opens with uh, every single day we we honor <laughs> Thalia's memory. It's like who the fuck the is Thalia? Inspires me. <laughs> yeah, that's very very true. I I like the dynamic in the woods a lot. I like I you're right. It hasn't been explored before and I'm glad they're doing it. Um I sorry, I'm still thinking about the child terrorist arc and I think part of the omission is that the show is not really interested in showing how the mundane world hinders the demigods. Yeah. It's really only interested in showing how the monsters and the gods do. That's more in line with how, like, the books eventually handle these things. But one of my favorite parts of The Lightning Thief is when we get into these more, like, urban fantasy. Um, like, they have to work around the mortals. They have to do all... They have to, like, uh, try not to look like they're murdering people in front of, like, regular human beings. And losing that, it just makes it all feel a little bit more, like, floatier. Like, out out of out of reality, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it loses it loses that stuff. It also loses one of the, my favorite like interactions between the mythical stuff and the real stuff in Lightning Thief, which is the fact that like because there's a war brewing with between Zeus and Poseidon, like the weather is going completely nuts. And I get right. that like that's something that will chew through your CGI budget, but you know it's it's a shame that it's not really in there. True, um, but it, like you said, that's that's like some good environmental stuff that I. I don't know. They, I think they could do it. I think that with with the money of all these different, like, with all these different people's money combined, I think they could make the weather happen. The uh, you could just fucking sack Lin Manuel Miranda and hire some no name to play Hermes, and that would probably free up enough of the budget. Oh my god! Are we? Can I jump ahead to talk about Hermes? Sure. <laughs> He's only here for a second. I think it's fine. I the way the sound I was alone in the house watching these episodes and the sound I fucking made when I was like Lin Manuel Miranda. Oh, did you not Why? know he was in this? No, <laughs> I knew so little about this series going in that I was just like completely blown away. Oh I was God. like, well, they're not showing the face, so it has to be some big name actor. Uh, and it's fucking <laughs> Lin Manuel Miranda. A deeply unserious television show. <laughs> like, come on now. I I, I can't. Mm-hmm. I think it might have been Riley Rethel that tweeted out when, when that casting was announced. Like, isn't Luke a sympathetic enough antagonist already? 
And like, it's true. I understand why he wants to kill his dad now. Oh my god, you're right. That's so funny. Um, Look, I've connected the dots. Lin-Manuel Miranda is in the Golden Compass TV show, too. Oh, my God. Is he really? (laughs) Yes, he is. Oh, my God. What is... (laughs) You know, I guess he must... I don't know how old he is. He probably, like... (sighs) Every picture I've ever seen of him, he looks 35. Bearing in mind that I've been seeing pictures of him for almost a decade now. He's 44. He's 44, (laughs) but I bet he was reading Percy Jackson when it came out anyway. Um, I, yeah, what kind fair. of fucking loser would be reading these as an adult? <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, God. Um, <laughs> you know what? I'm sorry. I take I take that back, Lynn. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't take back any of the other things I've ever said about you, but I take that back. <laughs> oh, God. Um, Auntie M. The... The, fa- the fact that Annabeth, like, clowns on people who took a few minutes to get what was going on in the book, which includes me, where she's just like, oh, Auntie M's Emporium, and it's full of statues. Obviously, it's Medusa. Meanwhile, when I read this in the book, it took me, like, most of the chat to figure out that was what was going on. Uh-huh. Um, and, and yeah, I like that, actually, because she... She figures it out faster than everyone, but here she doesn't... She's not even Lord in for a minute, um, they they they're basically forced in, and a really interesting change from the book, because mm. like, I oh my God, Medusa, I <laughs> have a fondness for Medusa's actor, um, and I believe she's doing some amazing work here. If I had a nickel for every time that I had seen this <laughs> actor portray a morally dubious uh, queer woman in a TV show show run by Jonathan Steinberg. I'd have two nickels, which isn't a lot, but it's weird that it's happened twice. Yes. She, I, oh God. Uh, Jessica Parker Kennedy is here killing it as Medusa. She has an incredible, the, the costuming is incredible with her. Mm. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I adore her whole, like, incredibly, like, out of time look, um, where she kind of looks like a statue a little bit with like the mm. like a general color she's got going on um the color scheme of her of her of her dress and like the, the like there's something about like half tilted over hats that i'm a big fan of as like anytime it's done as a costuming choice mm-hmm. um so good she's she she looks awesome and she is very very different from she is in the book than from how she is in the books I think that in part that's that's because of like the uh like the revisions that we've seen of Medusa's story even in like the classical community like classical mm. translation community where it, she's definitely seen as more of a sympathetic figure um and I like that I like it a lot I, yeah uh-huh I like it in theory I feel like some of this is kind of the thing that Rick Ryden does a lot in his later books where he will kind of take a, a, a woman or, like, a, a female monster from, like, antiquity and mythology and stuff, and, like, rather than just making them a straight-up monster, will make them, like, a bit more sympathetic and put in a bit more of a, here's why it's understandable that they did the things they did, uh, but also still, at the end of the day, make them, like, a horrible monster that you need to kill. That is very fair. Yeah. Uh, you're right, Jane. That is what, that is, on a very literal, just, like, 
very literal level and like uh, uh, not not to say like that's a surface level reading that is literally what's happening here you're correct um <laughs> uh she she gets to say some incredibly sympathetic stuff uh she gets to like deliver a monologue about her love for athena which is uh, like like you said some of the gayest shit i've ever heard <laughs> <laughs> and it's i don't know i guess it read as morally gray for me but i i wasn't really thinking about it in the context of Riordan doing this repeatedly with some of his uh, characters, especially female characters. Yeah, um, th- this this like, especially recalls like uh, Arachne and Gaia in Heroes of Olympus, who both have like pretty sympathetic backstories established before continuing to just be like unambiguous villains anyway. Yeah, man, Arachne is like okay. This is like tangential to Percy Jackson, but Arachne was like my favorite mythological figure as a child so mm-hmm. maybe i should read heroes of olympus i guess <laughs> hey give it a shot um, she's in the best one of those books so yeah okay um she i i i do think she is morally gray here like portrayed as like sort of a moral gray here um mm. in because percy there's a lot to, there's a lot of angles to talk about this with first of all she is doing a lot of like the, the continuing themes that started with um like the scene of percy's mom uh perseus and all that uh mm. with uh just talking about like you know we choose who to make our monsters um yeah and uh the whole like we're not our parents and you and i might might have more in common than you think all of basically Tell, saying over and over again it's all a matter of perspective like i i like you can craft narratives that turn people into monsters very easily and it's very convenient for certain groups of people to do that um and that is you know that depends on who is in power um and those stories are how you get like keep people from not being in power basically mm-hmm but we ground it in some great emotional stuff of Percy choosing to trust her because of his mom's stories, right? Yeah. Uh, um, and I think that is, like, very... We keep coming back to Sally throughout these episodes. We do the same thing in uh, episode four. Um, and I think that it is... It, although we talked about how, like, maybe her... In, she's not as... Um, her death isn't as like her quote unquote death isn't as tragic as it feels in the books in these for in the first two episodes. I mm. I think that we're still building up that relationship really well with these flashbacks and sort of like motivations that Percy has. I I would tend to agree there. I think that I'm satisfied with the way the show is characterizing his relationship with Sally and that to me that's the biggest carryover from the books because the book is very very explicit in like his mom being basically the biggest influence on his life too yeah absolutely uh it's it's that that aspect of it is really good um and of course the whole like gods is bullies thing also gets brought up here which i think is probably the most like if you're a kid watching this that's like the big i maybe uh like uh, like the narratives crafted by those in power to keep others down isn't isn't as relatable a theme, but I think bullying probably is. Probably <laughs> right. I mean the the idea that um, that adults can be bullies, I think, mm-hmm. is an important aspect of it, um, and and that ties it together to the more complex 
message that you wouldn't necessarily understand till you were an adult. Uh, definitely. Yeah. Jane, I, what's your what's your general opinion on all this? I think like Medusa in these scenes is like generally like a, a very well written character and I think like performed incredibly well. But also she does not deliver uh, the iconic line, I used to date your daddy from the uh, Percy Jackson movie. Uh... So uh, zero out of ten. <laughs> you know, I think you might have you might have turned me here. I think you're right. Uh <laughs> I I think this might be trash. Man, what a power move that would have been. And in that <laughs> outfit, mm, God. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, th- there's like something when she like takes Percy to the kitchen and like the lighting, like she's increasingly being shown in like silhouette as like she is basically saying, "Hey, don't worry, kid. I'll kill your friends for you." Um, <laughs> that that's so good the like protectiveness she feels over percy uh the moment that she lifts her veil to like un like show her eyes and her snake hair oh i i go i go wild for it i think this is like i just think an entirely great sequence yeah yeah i'm i'm gonna be honest though after that sequence like by the time they're down in the basement i was like wait how did we get here mm-hmm. like it just i just yeah suddenly they were in the basement and Percy and Annabeth are like yelling at each other and they kill Medusa and you know like both confess how they had the opportunity to betray the other and didn't and uh that all felt like it happened really quickly to me I don't know what did you guys think I I thought listening to all of that was really interesting it would have been nice if I could see it the the, the lighting of the show in dark scenes continues to be really bad it's so bad (laughs) i i had it was i had to like close all my blinds turn off the lights turn (laughs) up the brightness just to like almost be able to make out what was happening you have to max out the gamma for the intended viewing experience oh god oh no they're they're gonna start shipping out like disney branded like screens and they're the only thing we're gonna be able to watch tv shows on from now on (laughs) oh please don't say it (laughs) i'm sorry i'm so sorry Uh uh-huh i know i know what you mean about it feeling kind of like weird and rushed in places like i especially like the part where they kind of skip over the fact that grover just like disappears into the rafters and yeah. Percy and Annabeth just kind of look at each other and have like a, a funny quip about that and then don't rescue him. And it's like, he guys, he could die. He might just fly into Medusa and fucking die. Yeah. They, it's a, I, frankly, I think the fact that they had to kill Medusa, um, kind of is what makes the scene so weak. Uh, mm. like, I, I think that just like, okay, we have to, okay, we've had all this great stuff. Now we have to get to that conclusion. Um, and I don't know if the if point A went to point B quite well. Mm-hmm. I'll, yeah. Although I, I do. Was... Uh-huh. You go. Uh, you talk first because I have a sort of a thing about the end of it. I also had a thing about the end of it. <laughs> oh, okay, sick. Um, we're at the end of it. We're at the end of it, and I the themes i do the fact that the way they kill medusa instead of you know the classic sort of like looking at her through uh the, the through through a mirror reflection or what have you or grow beating her with a stick yeah the way they do it is by making her unseen <laughs> um 
Mm. right after she does this big uh, monologue about how she was punished for wanting to feel seen, uh, like Athena made it so that she could never be seen by others again without them hurting, Uh, and then making her invisible as the way to destroy, not having to see her anymore, dehumanizing her, that's incredible. This is a great rework. I have to say that despite the symbolic like subtext of that, right, um, everything you just said, Jacqueline, I was like, oh, hell yeah, because it completely came out of nowhere for me. Like, I was mm. expecting the reflection thing, you know? Yeah. I also think, like, do the, <clears throat> the way that they utilize the invisibility to, like, imply way more gore than you would actually get away with on a kid's show is just, like, really clever. Uh-huh. Where it's like, Percy is like groping around for this head and he's like, oh, fuck, I think I touched it. He's holding this like bloody stump. Well, and it makes it so much funnier, too, when he goes out to take care of Mrs. Dodds. Mm. Like, that was hilarious because (laughs) it was just so fast. And I think that they're doing a lot of that, like, the monsters get killed pretty fast which I actually can't say about the next episode, but about this episode and the episodes (laughs) prior, I do feel like all the monster fights, which loom really large in my mind from like my reading of the books are such a minimal part of the show. I I wonder how much of that is just a budget thing. It's true. I I suspect quite a bit. Um, Some of the best moments in Percy... Rick Riordan is kind of hit or miss at monster fights, I would say. Um, yeah. Yes. He sometimes they can be really compelling. Sometimes they can. I, I, I think I'm still to this day thinking about Procrustes, the body stretcher. I um, was literally just about to say, uh, I think the litmus test for whether or not this show is good is whether or not they nail the Procrustes fight. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, but sometimes I, I think uh, sometimes they can also just feel like Jane. You about you and I have gone back to just you know describing this as they punch a bit and then it's over. They punch for a bit. <laughs> yeah, um, that is also kind of frequent. And I I think that cutting past the fights entirely and just kind of saying the main thing is how these characters interact with each other between the fights. Um, it, it's a it's a decent choice. Uh, and also a convenient choice, like you said, for saving some money. <laughs> Speaking of those like interactions between the characters, uh, I actually had uh, a theory about some of the changes that have been made from the book that I kind of wanted to see if like, pass yeah, this podcast yeah. with you two. Please. Uh, is, so they reveal that Percy's mom is alive like way earlier than they do in the book. Oh, yeah. And I was I was initially like kind of down on this change, but I'm wondering now how much of it is like a device that they're using to stoke conflict because each of these is an individual like 30 minute episode and you need the characters to be like yelling at each other about a thing oh i so like we're getting to have it's not just that this is like providing motivation for for percy it's providing like conflict for the group um yeah it kind of it it really reminds me of like um the the adaptation of the expanse where like there's a whole episode in the show that is dedicated to like a bunch of people are stranded in a space shuttle and they have to like go outside and fix an aerial and get so they can send an SOS. Uh, and then in the book, they literally just send an email because like you you don't need to make the plot of a whole episode of TV out of that bit. Yeah. Um. 
I I think I I I think you're right. Like I think that it mm-hmm. is letting these characters. A lot of the time in the book, the reason that they were yelling and arguing with each other is because they're like ridiculous twelve year olds, right? Uh huh. Um, they they get way into their feelings. Um, they are they get annoyed by the very small things e- each other do, and. I I wonder if maybe they like the writers were like we need all these conflicts to feel more serious or something like that. Mhm. Uh I I I could see that being true. Now okay, so you all are going to have to remind me cuz I don't actually remember at what point in the book Percy finds out his mom is alive. Is it before or after he has the oracle prophecy? I after, think it's I when he's assume. in the 80s. I It is. Okay. I don't So the th- oh, Go ahead, please. No, 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 it's okay. So if if it's after the Oracle thing, what that what it's adding to me of him knowing that she's alive is that his intent all along is to save her and the the looming threat of you'll fail to save what matters most makes the constant fear that that means he's not going to save his mom be mm-hmm. hanging over his head the whole time. Which is a different kind of I think drama, right? But it it puts him in direct opposition to Annabeth and Grover who care about the actual quest not saving his mom you know yeah, yeah that, that's a yeah I think this is a this is an interesting change I want to see how it can it makes it so that we are frankly it, it having this um known from the beginning makes it makes us like a lot more behind Percy like we we want to see Percy save Sally right um, yeah. because we keep seeing how like great a relationship they had. I, I think that this is a change that I am like very welcome to from the books as like a just pacing thing. Um, that, that's fair. I think I am just, uh, I'm still attached to like the fucking like borderline Diabolus ex machina at the end of the first book where like Percy thinks that the, the, that line in the quest means that he's going to fail to get the bolt. And then yes. Hades wheels his mom out, and there's that moment where you're like your stomach drops, and you're like, "Oh, this is like so much worse, actually." Oh yeah, it's it's gonna rob that moment of some tension. So mm-hmm. I'm interested to see what it like if the added tension that it is creating now is worth it in the end. Because I I totally agree, like that that moment in the book was so pivotal, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we. I guess we'll just have to see how the equation ends. Um, and uh, t- getting more into like what this conflict is about, um, we after uh, Annabeth. This is a, there's kind of a whole lot of little like beats for everyone here. We get Annabeth seeing Percy in sort of a new way when he kills Electo um, and Medusa, uh, and sort of like I think probably adjusting her assessment of him. Um, we get Grover sort of like th- r- like deciding to be a bit more uh, brave and confident when he sees his uncle Ferdinand's statue. They let that be a bit more of an, of an emotional beat. And mm. then they do what Jane, I think you'll recognize this as a very Heroes of Olympus maneuver of one person <laughs> says a secret and then everyone is like, well, fuck, I guess we should say all of our secrets now. <laughs> so it's time for the confession circle. The confession circle, which I was actually consistently one of my favorite parts of Heroes of Olympus, I think, where Mm -hmm. where instead of just being like, all right, we have to drag out the secret throughout the entire book, everyone was just like, oh, fuck, well, I guess I have to tell you this thing, too. Um, And 
I, I like that what happens here doesn't leave everyone feeling good in the end. I think sometimes you get everyone finally reveals what's been weighing on them and then they clear the air and the relationship is better. And it's the perfect catharsis. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. That's not really true here, though. They're still pretty much at the same place, but they trust each other a little bit more, I would say. Yeah. They understand that they both had the opportunity to to be shitty and they didn't. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, after that, the episode pretty much ends with them shipping Medusa's head to Olympus, and that's where you get your Hermes reveal. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Which, they didn't ship the head to Olympus. Did they Did they ship the head to Olympus in the original book? They did. They definitely did. Yeah, they did. Yes, you're right. And then you're Poseidon right. mails it back to Percy. Yes, yes. okay. That That's how it goes. I couldn't remember the exact sequence there. Um, uh, a very quick shout out to Percy singing Grover's little song back at him again. Yes, I, that was I so cute. I think it was cowardice to cut away from that and not give us the full song. It would have been painful and I would have hated to sit through it, but it was cowardice to not do it nonetheless. They should have at least played it over the credits, okay? <laughs> Instead of playing, like, I I actually don't know what the song is, but whatever song Hermes was singing... <laughs> It's it's yeah. a needle drop I've heard in a million movies that are like pandering to people who are alive in the eighties. Yeah, that's totally fair. I didn't recognize it. Episode four uh, is a bit slimmer. Wait. Oh, go ahead, please. Uh, one last thing about episode three. Uh, as with last week, uh, my good friend Mint uh, has pointed out that there is a Rick Ryden cameo in these episodes. Oh my god! Uh, again, I. I didn't catch it, but apparently in the Hall of Statues in Medusa's basement, there is a Rick Ryden statue. <laughs> okay, is that the dude that they lingered on weirdly? Because that I would was, explain, there that was would one, be it. there was like one panning shot where I was like, who is this dude? <laughs> Wait, it might Audrey, Rick Ryden. Audrey, quick question. Did you catch the Rick yeah. Ryden cameo in the first two episodes? I probably did not because I wasn't aware that he had cameos. I... I, I didn't either until Jane pointed it out. You remember the principal's office scene? Yes. He was just in there. He was just sitting. Uh, the, the, he was the random dude? He was the, the random, random dude. dude who doesn't say anything and is just sitting in the I corner. I didn't know who that was. I was like, why is this guy here? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's film school 101 is like, don't have anybody in the scene you don't absolutely have to have in the scene. You absolutely have to have him. The, the the theory that me and Jane uh, threw around was that maybe uh, he's going to, like, be interested in what Percy's doing and, like, write down his adventures and, like, after hearing <laughs> about it in the principal's office and then, re- like, make it into a book. Um, but I like to think that that same character went off trying to track, da- like, trying to continue, like, noting that down their quest and ended up at Antium's before them and died. Oh. <laughs> yes. Perfect. Perfect. And there were no more Rick Riordan cameos. Oh God, uh, maybe if, not. I, if that was I, if that was the case, I badly needed to have Percy like stop in front of that guy and go, "Yeah, get fucked." Like, is that the <laughs> vice principal of my school? <laughs> oh my God. Um, are we anything else on episode three before we go on to four? I don't think so. Nope. All right, episode four is a bit slimmer. I would say probably we'll probably go through it a bit quicker. We we start off with a great uh, a flashback to baby Percy. Um, How the fuck did they get baby Percy to look so much like the the less baby Percy actor? They they look identical but smaller. Walter Walter Scoble. Walker, and I know that because 
it, are, are we sure it's not Walter? Because I definitely had a moment of being like, Walter is not the name for a 12 year old. It, it is Walker. Damn it. Um, maybe it's Walker. I had a moment. Maybe the ba- maybe the baby <laughs> is Walter Scoble. <laughs> <laughs> they do look a lot alike, though. They really do. I guess it might be his brother. It it certainly could be. I I think I don't care enough to look into it. No, I really don't care at all. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, they 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 did a decent job. They they got a they got a ba- an identical baby. Maybe they CGI aged him down. Um, <laughs> Uh, and like, uh, and we get a, a new, a TV show exclusive scene with Sally desperately trying to make him learn how to swim. And she like, she not, not only does Percy like drive her to the verge of having a panic attack. He then like, is like, no, you need to breathe, <laughs> which I, I, I don't know how Sally I, kept her temper. I, okay. So here's the thing that, um, occurred to me. I don't really know how old baby Percy was supposed to be implied to be in that scene, but as a person who has a very young child, you start swim lessons earlier if you can. Yeah. And I have an and eight- I'm like, if she knew who his dad was, you think <laughs> she maybe would have started those swim lessons a little earlier? I have an eight-month-old sister who goes to swim classes. Right. Like, I brought my kid to swim lessons when he was, like, eight months old. So, she w- you know. She would have had, like, month one water crib. Right. <laughs> um, and you can. Like, there are people who will do swim lessons for babies, like, six months old, you know? Maybe she was like, I don't want to put, like, a child who is just, like, pure id in the water with his Poseidon powers and have him, like, kill an entire room full of people. (laughs) You know, that's also fair. Maybe she was afraid of what would happen. She had to, like, teach him, like, uh, grounding techniques before she, like, taught him water techniques. (laughs) I did think the way the scene was going to go was that Percy was afraid to get into the water because he was like, oh, I I feel some kind of weird fucking power. That would have been very cool. Yeah, I, I we don't really know why he does. Uh, he's he's scared. It's implied, but maybe he's scared of his power. Who's to say? Mm-hmm. Um, I I like that read on it. Yeah, um, and I I really do like like you said. Sally is like driven to the verge of having a panic attack because she knows that he's gonna need this to not die already. <laughs> like mm-hmm. we we're getting more of like Sally has been raising this kid on like the edge of a knife right like she has been afraid for his entire life that something will happen and like a monster will eat him or he'll accidentally like summon a wave and drown himself or something horrible will happen Mm -hmm. uh and we don't we don't learn a lot about like what that was like for her so i'm glad that we get sort of her perspective in this yeah yeah i think we're shielded from that in the book because percy was shielded from it in the book yes yeah, and it's all in his perspective. And one of the advantages of the TV show is that we get to go outside of that perspective. Right. Mm-hmm. But when we drop back into his perspective, he's pissed off. Yeah. When isn't he? he good question. He should be. He should be. He doesn't deserve this. He doesn't deserve... He basically lays it out. He doesn't deserve, and none of them deserve, how their parents treat them. Um, he he's angry that the gods can just basically do whatever they want and sometimes acknowledge their kids and at that and just like he he's saying the Percy Jackson thing the the big thing with Percy Jackson the gods are fucking assholes yeah I, and he's not wrong he's not wrong and I like that Annabeth like tries to argue against him and her argument is obviously bullshit 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Because she's like, well, you know, everyone is actually uh, kind of an abusive asshole when you think about it. But also the gods, the gods have rules. And if you learn the rules, then uh, you can at least have them on your side. You know, as long as you show them respect, they'll be in your corner. And this is, like, directly after they met Medusa, who just said that she fucking prayed to Athena for years and never heard anything and then got fucking cursed. (laughs) Yeah, it was interesting to hear that because, like, the things that Annabeth is saying about the gods, like, just learn their rules and you'll be fine. I'm like, honey, that is, like, authoritarian abuse. (laughs) That is what that is. Like, if you have to learn to live a certain way or else suffer the wrath of someone, that's abuse. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think the show absolutely knows that what she's saying is bullshit. A hundred percent. And Like, we're definitely with Percy here. Yeah, we're sort of reminded. Uh, uh, I think that Annabeth uh, being sort of like the representative of the the wrong side basically here really works. Um, mm-hmm. I, I want them to root it a little bit more in like her hubris, I think. Um, true. Yeah. I, that is one of my favorite aspects of Annabeth's character is like how her, her like identity is so like, I am the great, I am like, I could be really great and do anything perfectly and be like the gods. Um, mm-hmm. and so much of that is like this pride that she has in like being like Athena's child and all that. And I want them to bring that aspect of it up a bit more. Um, I, I imagine it'll come up in the second season of Sea of Monsters because that's such a huge part of that book. Yeah. But yes. Um, I, that, but otherwise I think that she is a very effective uh, sort of rep- a very effective human communicator of the thing that the show doesn't believe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <sighs> We get a big W here when we learn that the centaurs are all dying. Uh, unwise girls stay winning. Uh, we famously the don't ponies like are dying. The, we famously don't like the party ponies or uh, the weird evil centaurs that required and calls like barbarians. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm. the more centaurs dying, the better for us. And it's you honestly, know, it's... I don't, I don't remember that much about centaurs in any of the books and reading. Like, or like seeing that scene I was like oh yeah the pan thing you know but I didn't really th- give the centaurs themselves a second thought <laughs> that's fair I don't think you should give them a second thought um, I, I, I think they deserve a thought and that's all the thought I have about the centaurs is that uh, I think it's interesting that um, Rick Ryden is kind of conflating what he's presented in the books as like you know people who exist outside of civilization and are evil uh, with like kind of nature and the environment and how both are kind of end up being destroyed by the same forces in a way that is kind of like really dehumanizing towards like uh like that perspective is really dehumanizing towards like the people who are suffering because of that and maybe that's something we circle back around to later in this episode i wonder (laughs) (laughs) um I wonder. Uh, this is actually our first. I would say this this episode. Um, we're talking a lot about how like the show is pretty good at establishing things early, um, sometimes seasons ahead of time. I I think that they kind of ignored at the up to this point, like Grover the animal lover. Like right. I. Oh yeah. I guess I guess part of it is him like being chill with the the uh, Pegasi at the start. They Maybe. they tried to do a lot of it through context clues, I think, just his proximity to animals and always having like his scenes framed in nature for the most part after they're out of the school. 
right? But like this is the part where he gets his big monologue about like the wild places disappearing and pan and and all of that. There should have been a bit where he finds a lizard in the woods. Oh, you're right. Yeah. It a, a lizard or a toad or I mean anything honestly in the woods. I, yeah, and then he could have flossed with Percy. <laughs> that was very funny to me. That, that, no, that was great. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I have circled all the way around from, oh no, a thing that's going to really date media in 10 years or whatever, all the way back around to this is so absurd that it's funny. Percy is a 12 year old yeah. with ADHD in 2023. Of course, he's flossing. <laughs> yes, that's very true. It, it's kind of it's it's pretty much perfect characterization there. Um, <laughs> He, I, I'm always, I think Rick Riordan, um, he, he is a guy who cares about a lot of things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, he, he really cares about like the natural world and like environmentalism as something to return to in his books quite frequently. Um, and I, I think that having that come into play here, uh, where we start to, we start to understand Grover's uh, character a bit more, I would say. Like, not just the idea of, like, uh, especially this the episode after we get him sort of affirming himself with the idea of his Uncle Ferdinand. Mm-hmm. That is good. Um, that's a good way to start making him have an on-ramp into, like, having his own thing. Because so far his thing has mostly been try and keep Percy and Annabeth happy. Yeah. Right. I will say though, um, I think there is like the the way that um like Rick positions the idea of Pan is like kind of kind of indicative of how his brain works, where instead of it being like humans start destroying the natural world and Pan fucks off, uh it's Pan fucks off and as a result of that humans start being evil and destroying the natural world and it kind of kind of like in a, in a way, absolves people of like any responsibility of having done that. I don't think that I re- noticed that distinction, but I—that's really interesting. It just—it stuck out as weird to me that it's established that Pan disappeared two thousand years ago and not like two hundred years ago. You know, that's yeah, that is a really long time. I mean, there is, I guess. I know that's like that. that there's an argument to be made. I guess that that's like dawn of civilization or whatever, but also. Not really. Yeah, I think what this really loses is the fact that if you're going to talk talk seriously, again, deeply unserious TV show, Lynn Manuel, Manuel Miranda <laughs> is Hermes. Um, if you're going to talk seriously about like uh, environmental collapse, you need to talk about capitalism. Um, yep. And I don't think there's a single bit of interest uh, for Rick Riordan or the creative team. Maybe not the. I don't think there's a single uh, shred of interest for Rick Riordan or like Disney as an entity to talk directly about capitalism as a problem. I was no. gonna say you you were about to fire a hell of a shot at Jonathan Steinberg, person noted for working on Black Sails. Yes, uh, I, I I don't want to say that about him. I I think that he is. Uh, I, I I I but I think that like you, it's going to make the pan stuff always be kind of weak because yeah. I think most what we get here is Rick's and sort of the series, I would say that just like the work's cynicism toward humanity, um, mm. where it's not a matter of like, these are the factors that caused it. It's that Pan was the only thing standing between humans and their need to destroy things. <laughs> like to destroy, like, pa- like 
like humans would have destroyed nature 2000 years earlier uh, if pan wasn't around sort of the vibe i get from this and it's that kind of thing you get with um like media that is like not questioning the status quo where it'll talk about like a really horrible thing that like like america does as foreign policy or something and it'll be like oh human nature caused this it's just the way that we are it's so tragic yeah it's it's true it is one of those things where like it's a fine line because you don't want to to make the implication be each individual person's responsibility when it is the responsibility of capitalism and Mm. and you know um people strip mining and things like it and i say people there but like that's corporations right you know yeah so so it's a fine line i think but yeah it's kind of a weird weird blip in the show yeah, uh, we 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 will tie back into it later in a way that is interesting, though. Um, when we get to the arch, um, which uh, not to not to start talking about the arch too early. I, I don't want anyone. I mean, uh-huh. we'll get whenever there. you see the arch, you have to say, "Look, it's the arch." It's uh, I live in St. Louis. That is a time honored tradition. It doesn't matter how long you have lived here. When you get close enough to downtown to see the arch, you have to say it. You know, I. I've been to St. Louis once, once, um, and I, I, I did also like just sort of compulsively point at it and say, "Look, it's the arch." So, I think it might actually have magic to it, like com- that compels people to do this. It's just the instinct, you know. It's it's a great instinct. I I mean, this part of the book uh, was actually like my favorite because of being like, oh, I live in Missouri, and like there's never anything about Missouri because <laughs> it's a boring flyover state and whatever. Uh-huh. And so even though at the time I didn't live in St. Louis, I was like, hell yeah, and now I do live in St. Louis, and I was still like, hell yeah. Uh, but before they get to St. Louis, they meet like a lady on the train because their train car gets all smashed up and the security on the trains being real assholes about it, thinking that they did it and stuff. And so this lady is like, oh, just let me talk to them for a little bit. I think you're scaring them. Yeah, they get put under arrest. And uh, uh, Annabeth, first of all, being, uh, again, awesome here. She's doing the like um you know defiance uh sort of toward unjust authority which you know she can't actually she she is 12 she can't not make herself be under arrest um yeah i mean she it, also has like a a knife so i guess she could <laughs> but that... <laughs> no a celestial bronze you can't use it to kill mortals unfortunately you're right you're right actually you can't use it to kill humans it might work on a cop you know, <laughs> good point. We haven't. We. I hope we get to test that theory in the, in the show eventually. Um, I. I didn't. I think first of all, what I don't train cops who like arrest you and put you on in train jail is such nonsense. Um, yeah, there's no train cops. I take the train a lot. There are not train cops. There are no train cops on the trains that I use. I've no. I. I've, there are cameras everywhere seen, though. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure they would have seen this lady flying. I, I guess they wouldn't have because of the mist. But um, they, they, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the queen, like the mother of all monsters, is like able to control the mist enough that she can make it look to the cameras like the kids were there. I don't want to think about it too hard. Um, <laughs> I, I do think it's it's interesting that like with the train cops, like Annabeth is the one to be like 
very defiant and be like, you know, are we actually under arrest? And I think, like, I'm kind of in two minds about that. Because on the one hand, I think, like, you know, they've they've cast a black girl to play this character, so I think, like, especially it makes sense that she has kind of an adversarial relationship with the police and is, like, very suspicious of them. Uh, Also, I feel like it kind of clashes quite a lot with, like, her generally being, like, very pro-Olympian. And, like, uh, Olympus totally is, is so often in the books used as, like, a stand-in for, like, the American status quo. I also had kind of the reaction of, like, yeah, this is a black actress, and, and so, like, having her be adversarial with the cops makes sense. But also, I know, I you know, a lot of folks who, who don't trust the cops, and the answer is keep your head down, yeah. you know? And so there was a little bit of that where I was like, I feel like Percy should be the one saying this. Mm. Yeah. I, I, I do think Percy, I, I think... This speaks to the cognitive dissonance uh, that I think should be in Annabeth, where I think that, um, like, she doesn't see the, like, human authority and the godly authority as, like, the same thing. Um, like, True. even though that, that, that can some... circle back around to later also. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, I, I do think it would make more sense for Percy to be the one who is, like, um, who is doing this because uh, that is like his whole thing. He's, he's the impertinent guy. He's, he's the little <laughs> kid who, what, what's an asshole to authority. Um, and, you know, we get to, that's a side of Annabeth we haven't really seen yet, actually. Um, so the choice to flush her out, her out in that direction uh, is, you know, that is a choice. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's, 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 it's interesting. I, I don't know what to, what, I don't have like a final judgment on it necessarily. Um, but I do have a final judgment on, on Echidna. And it's that this is so much better than in the books. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. She like, doesn't just fucking show up. And also it's not like weirdly fat phobic. Y- yes. Yes. Although I think it, they should have still cast a fat actor. Uh, but you know, Disney, um, I, I am, <laughs> She, Rick Riordan pulled out the mother of all monsters in book one and had her die in a chapter, basically. <laughs> um, or, you know, get clowned on and, and very quickly. Yeah. And I think that is just, like, such a mistake um, that establishing her as, like, the episode-long presence and multi-episode presence, actually, as we sort of end off here on a cliffhanger, uh, not to spoil it, I guess, but... Uh, and like this incredible threat hunting them down throughout the episode that Mm. is i i think makes a lot more sense and makes her feel a lot more dangerous um and really gives credence to like the dangerous mythical world it's not just that you run into you know you can't just run into the mother of all monsters and you know kill her with a sword it's not that simple yeah i think also it speaks a little bit to and this is maybe interesting juxtaposed with medusa um but she doesn't look like a monster she looks like a person you Mm -hmm. know um echidna does or um yes echidna does but like medusa still had her hair and her eyes and the things that made her look you know different quote unquote so that you would see her as a monster or whatever but like this she literally just looks like a woman like a middle-aged woman and to me, that's an interesting thing. Like, I know that that's in keeping with the way that she's written in the books, except for fatphobic. But, mm. like, the idea that not every monster is going to have an obvious tell. 
or look like a monster. I guess yeah. I guess it's also part of the thing where like Echidna doesn't talk about herself as if she is a monster. She talks about the monsters as like something that she has created that are like apart from yes. herself. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it's it's an interesting way of being like, you know, then not not every person in your way is necessarily going to look like a horrible monster and will not necessarily be classified as a monster. They might just be some asshole. That's true. Yeah, sometimes the worst monsters are like the white woman who will call the cops on a little black girl, right? It turns yes, out it's man. Exactly. I, yeah. Um she doesn't see it that way though. She is she she thinks that the real monsters are the demigods she met along the way. Uh, <laughs> I and Again, you know, some woman who makes actually a decent point, but will eventually, you know, have her downfall. I I adore. Uh, no, do I adore it? Adore is that the right word. Whatever. <laughs> I I like um, her whole like directness about turning around. I'm like changing my thoughts on this. Is it too much? Are we getting too much every episode like hammered into our head? Like, hey, sometimes the real monster is the is not who you think it would be. I I think we're, we're getting a lot of that. And I think it feels like we're getting too much because uh, not to jump ahead to the end of this episode. But I think like the show kind of doesn't seem like it's willing to follow through on that idea. That's what I was about to say. I think that maybe we're digging deeper than this show merits in this regard. <laughs> like, because it doesn't deliver on that idea and it doesn't seem like it has anything tangible to say about it. It just likes to present it. Mm-hmm. And so it's like this unsatisfying, like, philosophical, ethical question, right? <laughs> and so for me, I'm like, we already spent more time on this than the show did. We the- Like, maybe... Maybe it doesn't merit that, you know? It it could be more than the Joker saying, we're a lot alike, you and I. But that kind of seems like where it's happy to sit. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I, mm, I think it can go beyond that. And this is a, just me putting some may, maybe degree of trust in uh, the creative team whose work, previous work I've enjoyed. But mm-hmm. I, I, it depends on how... Depends on how much they're willing to change, basically. I guess, <laughs> like, if this just goes through with the Percy Jackson and the Olympian story, beat for beat, or not beat for beat, but like it hits conclusions, the major beats. it hits the major beats. Then that will make all of this essentially, uh, like, you know, fun, fun dressing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but but not really uh, get to the meat of it. But at the same time, when we get to hear uh, Echidna say something like monster, it's an odd word considering you, my grandmother, was your great grandmother. Like, this has always been a family story. It it feels like there are all these big themes here. They have to do something with it, right? You'd say that. And yeah, I feel like uh, in a couple of minutes, the show is going to uh, be presented a golden opportunity to do something interesting with some themes and completely fuck it up. Go ahead, Jane. Yeah, tell us, Jane. Tell us about it. Uh, so when when we get to the St. Louis Arch, uh, which, by the way, I've never been to St. Louis, and I've never been to St. Louis so hard that I mispronounced the name the first time we talked about it in the book. Jacqueline fucking clowned on me for it really hard. <laughs> oh, no! Jane, 
I, I guess I should reveal this because we have we have uh, we have we have a resident here. Um, <laughs> Jane very famously uh, said uh, San Louis, uh, and I thought I, it was pronounced French. <laughs> Jane, I I regret to inform you, as someone living in Missouri, that we have a um, we have a town whose name is spelled like Versailles. But that's not how you say it. Oh. <laughs> it's pronounced Versailles. What the fuck? <laughs> so I cannot blame you at all for pronouncing it that way, but Missouri's not that cultured. <laughs> oh gosh. Poor British Jane. Uh tell us tell us your 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 woes. So we get to the arch in, in St. Louis and we fucking Annabeth is talking it up as like this is, you know, this is a temple to athena it's this incredible precision precision built kind of like monument to like uh great architectural stuff uh and grover kind of pushes back on that idea a little bit and in a shot where like annabeth is kind of framed by a display about some native americans behind her uh grover says you know that's not all that this was a monument to uh and you know I thought in that moment that Grover was making an allusion to the fact that, like, the Arch was originally built to, like, commemorate the fucking manifest destiny westward expansion of the United States and all the fucking That's what I thought, genocide too. and colonialism that happened because of that. And then we we get to the end of that scene where Grover is, like, you know, he's, he's kind of pissed off about Annabeth. Annabeth dismissing him, basically, and being like, well, you're just talking about what a bunch of gods did with my mother's idea. And... Percy's reaction is, well, he doesn't like it when people fuck with animals. And it's like that because it, it cuts to like a shot of like some people hunting some stuff during the Westwood expansion. And it's like it's taken a really interesting opportunity to talk about how like the ideas of quote unquote civilization that the gods represent have been used to justify some absolutely heinous shit throughout history. And it kind of swerves at the last second to just be about animals and like again like like with the central thing is conflating like the the destruction of the natural world and like some pretty flowers and shit with like native americans getting murdered in a way that feels like almost like noble savages kind of shit where it's like these people were so in tune with nature and then we came in and destroyed them that's just it, that's it, always it, kind of been the undercurrent of the pan stuff and that is like the thing that i have taken issue with in the books with it too yeah i just um, think this like this brings it to the surface in a way that is just like so egregious and like it there was i i know that gross. i know it's a kid's show but i genuinely i expect better from the person who like was heavily involved in black sales when like presented with an opportunity to like do something interesting with the themes like this it is a kids show and it is a Disney kids show. And so there is some amount where I'm like, their production stuff is very tight and they, I could see it being like a top level clamp down kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I also am like, it was a really golden opportunity. And I also think that there is still a way to talk about like the impact on Native Americans to children. Like I read, a, I was really into like, I'm going to call it settler fiction because the, like the genre in the United States, that's like mm -hmm. Little House on the Prairie and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Very much was into it. Very interested in the Oregon Trail and that kind of thing. But that literally naturally leads you to books about Native Americans, even as a kid. Yeah. And I had like picture books about Native Americans having to move to reservations and things like that, you know? So like it is, 
it is something that you can talk to kids about. You can and should, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I Speaking of people who are from flyover states, I'm from Oklahoma. Uh, and th- th- this is something that uh, actually surprisingly often, t- like, you know, you can take as an, you don't really have to learn a lot of this stuff, even in Oklahoma, until you're like a bit of an older kid. But you are still like, Sorry, let me change this. You don't have to learn about this stuff if you're like uh, an older white kid uh, mm-hmm. or like not native. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that there is, I, I think maybe part of the problem here is that one aspect of the original books that was has been kind of struck from the record because it is kind of a disgusting aspect of the original books is the entire like Western civilization thing. The Heart Uh, of the West hasn't been mentioned once, yeah. And without talking about, like, Western, like, the heart, like, the West, um, like, the power of America, all that kind of thing, it's difficult to, to talk about, like... In like the environment and indigeneity and how that has been affected um, because we're kind of dancing around the idea that like America as a colonial power um, exists almost mm-hmm. like it I think there is a little bit going I think there are shots there are like you know we're, we're seeing shots of like oh here's a headdress right here is a uh, we're, we're, we're getting this museum that is that has like oh l- look at all these uh, native artifacts right of the, these people yeah. who may as well not exist anymore right um uh, in the eyes of sort of the world at large and that but it's so backgrounded that I think that is very, it's, it's frustrating. I, if the, if the takeaway is just like, man, those animal, like, like, Oh, the animals really got hurt. That's, I think that's just like a a total miss from the, from the show. Yeah. Yeah. I I think even if it is just like, because of a Disney clampdown on what they were allowed to talk about, the, the, the final product that's come out of that still sucks. It does. It does. Yeah. Uh, so you're talking about like the backgrounds showing all the Native American artifacts and things like that. I don't know how much of this episode was shot on location versus like on a soundstage, but like it's a very faithful recreation of the arch and the arch grounds and the mm-hmm. museum that is underneath the arch. I was very impressed with it. I was like, holy crap. Like there's some things like like the fountain outside and stuff where I'm like, oh, yeah, I think they probably actually shot that on the arch grounds they like, actually put to, this you know, fucking kid in a fountain and splashed cold water <laughs> on a day that probably fucking freezing oh i'm sure um but you know i i felt like the sets were very cool and good although none of the little pod elevators up to the arch have ever been that clean when i have sat in no <laughs> uh the the like uh i believe a family from japan sitting across from us um, I, I went, we went up, we went up in the, one of those art and I was, I did not want to sit on those seats. They, I was like, do I have to like, it was, it's like a cramped, gross little space. It, it's fun, but it's gross and cramped. It's very cramped and I'm very claustrophobic. So it's the worst part of the whole experience. That for sounds me. horrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, they like, they show just the three of them going in the pod, but I need you to know, Jane, that they will fit like six or seven people in one of those. <laughs> yes. No. I, this is why I emphasize that there was an entire family. There were like seven people at least in my uh, in my thing when I went there. Um, yeah, I, I I I agree that they must have actually splashed uh, Walker Scoble with a lot of water. Have you heard that? Like I, they have you know like all the costumes and stuff like the. 
um, like uh, up in a like you know they have them up displayed and stuff like that. They can't apparently they couldn't actually do that with Percy's costume. Um, because it was so, like, destroyed from being so drenched in water. <laughs> uh, like, his, his main costume. I did not and know that, that. That's so funny. Incredible to me. I was just going to say, do you not make one costume for when he's in the water and one costume for when he's dry? You know, that might have been smart. The budget must really have been restricted on this thing. Oh, God. I was going to say that we didn't talk about why he was splashed with water, and that's because he got uh, stung by by Echidna's, whatever, pet that is in one shot, like a tiny little dog uh, that mm. we find out later, like when they're up on top of, like in the top of the arch, uh, that it's the Chimera. Yeah. Yeah, this happens way earlier than it does in the book. The poison takes like an hour to start actually killing him. Yeah. Um, and... Again, I really like this whole thing as like them having to run away from her while Percy is like, like growing increasingly injured. Mm-hmm. Um, the flip fountain scene is very funny. <laughs> Just like uh, them desperately throwing water onto him. The people staring I, at them. <laughs> I also think that. Uh, what, what do we think of the chimera? And like we we I on on our previous episode we didn't we, we thought that the minotaur like looked cool but we weren't especially impressed by it. Um, yeah, that's I I think that the minotaur had the benefit of being in a night scene mm-hmm. and a rainy scene. The chimera in nothing but the harsh light of day. I was like, man, I feel like Disney can afford better CGI than this. Even even lighting on a completely CGI creature on a TV budget, famously great, always turns out looking incredible. God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, oh, man. It's not the best. It's not what I would picture a chimera to look like, really. It, it, I actually did have to go, wait, what combination of animals is a chimera? Because I thought that I was thinking of the wrong animal when I was envisioning it. I wasn't. It just looks weird. I think it's like, it. you know, a chimera is, in theory, a bunch of animals smashed together. But I, th- I think one of the problems with this design is that it kind of, simultaneously, all the parts are too distinct, but also they're kind of like, there's a, there's a kind of uniform kind of grayness to them. Yeah. Yeah. None of them are particularly striking, but none of them really, like, flow together well either. I feel like I can't remember what color it was. Kind of like, yellowy that's gray. how forgettable it was for me. <laughs> yeah, it it's it blends in with the arch a little bit, even it, like it has a, it's a strong outline, so you can sort of like get what's happening. It's like okay, there's a monster, a, I think. Um, it, I feel, it, I, I, oh god, I was gonna say I uh, so uh, so Chimera's appearance aside, there the only moment in the show thus far that really got me was the like door scene where he swaps places with Annabelle so that he's the only one up there because he's dying anyway. And I don't know what it is. I think it is literally just the dynamic of that type of scene because I can think of scenes that were similar in other media where I'm like people on two sides of the door and one of them's going to die and it just made me cry. And I was like, man, I knew this was going to happen, but like it just made me cry. I thought it was really well done. Yeah, this is a Doctor Who ass scene. You're right. Doctor Who has seen fucking Kirk and Spock, etc. Kirk and Spock is what I was thinking of. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I... Yeah, I I really like that dynamic, too. I'll admit that I had kind of... I I think that... um, 
the episode kind of got me to like a like um what's the word i was a little bored <laughs> um yeah yeah so i <laughs> It kind of blurred together for me, and I was like, oh, Percy, they're yelling at Percy behind a door. What's happening? Um, <laughs> but I, I I, got the gist of it, and it did seem like it was a pretty good scene. Um, <laughs> from, from <laughs> I mean, we did spend, a, like, a ton of time in this episode. I know we talked about how it was going to be, like, it was, like, a slimmer episode, and it's because it just felt like they lingered on the train for so long and then they lingered at the arch grounds for so long and then by the time you get to like the climactic final fight you're like wait this is still happening yeah yeah i think it only has like 25 minutes to develop any of its ideas and that means that it does feel kind of like it just does two things which stop which i guess is to stop it from stealing feeling overstuffed and to keep it under budget but also means that we kind of feel like we're dicking around for a lot of it Hey, episode three was like 50, 55 minutes or something like that. And that didn't, that felt like a pretty good pace. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they could do it. Yeah. I though I think the one aspect of this we haven't touched on is everything with Athena. Um, yeah. Athena mm. sort of, this being very firmly defined as a temple to Athena where they will be safe from Echidna. And then Athena letting Echidna in to punish Annabeth for her impertinence. This is like, this feels like the kind of thing that like irreparably fucks a relationship, right? Like, yeah, mother of Annabeth, the year. Annabeth was like tangentially involved in Percy doing something mildly impertinent, which like th- it didn't even seem like the gods were that pissed off about. Like Hermes sounded kind of entertained by it, uh, and as a result, uh, Athena essentially like allows could, allows Annabeth to potentially get killed. And I feel like that's the point where you just like stop talking to that parent. I also think it's it's a juxtaposition with how desperately Sally is trying to protect Percy at the beginning mm-hmm. scene, right? Like this is the exact opposite of that. This is Athena saying, "I don't care if you die." Yes, you're you're exactly right. Uh, one thing the show is very good at is doing like parallels in that way. It's pretty much every episode something like that is happening, and I, yeah, Jane. I will say you're right that this is like the they like, won't talk to you anymore moment. How often do you think they talk in the first place? <laughs> okay. Well, I think Annabeth has said not at all. This is this is the Annabeth should stop trying to talk to her mom moment in that case. Yeah. Yeah, I, I get what you mean, but from the character we've had of Annabeth so far, I think what would actually result from this is like, what did I do wrong? Absolutely. <laughs> right? Like, no, you're right. Like this. This is her, like, I'm sorry, like, I messed up. You know, this is the, you know what bullies want, like, to do most? Make you blame yourself. This is mm-hmm. what Medusa said. Um, I, this is, and it is exactly how it plays out. Uh, Athena, once again, being a bit of a bully. I think um, it's just one of those things where, like, the, the, the books so often play the relationship between, like, the demigods and the gods as, like, estranged parents. And that tends yeah. to that tends to be a way that they kind of ground a lot of those relationships, and I think doing something like this it kind of crosses the line into like a much more kind of mythological and like hostile relationship in a way that like that if we try to go back to that grounding now without addressing that, it's going to feel really unnatural. Yeah, I would tend to agree. We don't have a lot to say about this because it cliffhangs, but uh, the final. Th- but speaking of relationship with the parents, we end on Percy in the water, and I think we'll probably get a bit more into that next time. 
Poseidon being like, oh, it's so difficult. It's so difficult to stand back and watch you. Go fuck yourself, man. <laughs> Go That's fuck yourself. Have to say about that. It's your episode sandwich because he tells him to just breathe. Oh, you're right. Okay. I guess he's a good dad then. Uh, <laughs> I guess <laughs> he was in the pool and he could have healed Percy in the fountain. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Fuck him. <laughs> um, uh, do you want to do a quick knots his hat? Fuck it. Let's uh, go very quickly. Uh, uh, I think that... Huh? Yeah, go ahead, please. Uh, I think Athena is a repressed lesbian and is uh, taking out her anger at herself (laughs) on Medusa by cursing her. I think that the Oracle is trans-mask? I don't have anything. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I mean, Medusa is the obvious one. I see now. I see now. Yes, Medusa is very obviously a lesbian. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Audrey, well, bye, you've been an amazing guest this week. Uh, do you want to tell people where they can find you before we uh, before we uh, wrap? Sure. I am online as Lady Tabletop on Tumblr and Itch.io, and those are pretty much the only two places I live. Uh, I host Alone at the Table on the Moonshot Network, so you can check out my show where I play solo RPGs if you're interested. Very good yeah. show. I'm a regular listener. It's good. Yes. Uh, Thank uh, you. Very good. Go listen to it. Uh, and... Our intro and outro is Super Mario Ocean by Space Pony. You can find that at OC Remix. Our cover art is by Vera at Insmith underscore in on Twitter. We're hosted by the Moonshot Podcast Network. Uh, you can find them at moonshotpods.com, goodfuckingpodcast.com, many such podcasts, such as Unlock the Table, uh, as well as other things that you will also enjoy. Um, uh, if you are interested in looking for us online, you'll want to go to Twitter, Tumblr, uh, anywhere else, probably, except for some of the places that we're not on, on slash unwise girls, where you can find links to our episodes when they go up. You can find, um, uh, visual companions occasionally when we start a book uh you can find all sorts of funny little things you know if we delay for any reason you'll find that there uh and you can also find our socials and a link to our discord server which you should join if you want to support us you can go uh leave a five-star rating and review on your podcast up a choice you can go and tell a friend about us because that one really really helps we love Mm -hmm. when you do that we get a little buzz of joy every time we can tell every time that you tell someone about this podcast it's like we we sneeze, you know how in like a like an anime or whatever they sneeze whenever someone's talking about them. We sneeze whenever uh, anyone tells their friend about us. That's true. Um, there we go. There's one now. Yeah, yeah. That was the, thank you, listeners. Keep <laughs> hashtag keep Jane sneezing. <laughs> let's let's advertise on Wise Girls with hashtag keep Jane sneezing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You can also go to patreon.com slash unwisegirls, uh, where for a dollar a month you get the Discord role of Camp Counselor. Uh, for three dollars a month you get the Discord role of... Friend of Dionysus, as well as all of our bonus content. Yep, if you have been listening to this episode this week where we talked a lot about... What's the actor from Medusa's name again? Jessica Parker Kennedy. If you've enjoyed listening to us talk about Jessica Parker Kennedy and Jonathan Steinberg and uh, about this this funny show that they used to work on called Black Sails and how that ends up relating to Percy Jackson, uh, we watched the entire thing on our bonus show. It's all up there for you to listen to if you join at the $3 tier or above, and I think we did some really interesting analysis on it. We absolutely did. And for $5 a month, you will get the Discord role of Aphrodite's Chosen, all of our bonus content, and a special thank you at the end of every episode. Speaking of which, this week we'd like to thank Mint, I Love Sammy's Great, Danny, Tana, Bree, and Erica. 
Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And as we always say, at the end of every single episode. See you next week, Camp Half Blood. See you next week, Camp Half Blood. Bye-bye. Bye.